0: Speed up with podcast. Speed up. Rationally speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org.
1: Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I'm your host, Julia Galef, and with me today is our guest, Jesse Richardson. Jesse is an award-winning creative director from Australia. He's the man behind several uh, very successful campaigns about skeptical thinking and rationality that have gone viral. Um, basically the way he describes his, uh, his life quest now is that he wants to use his advertising powers for good instead of evil. Uh, Jesse is the man behind, uh, what is probably, although correct me if I'm wrong, Jesse, his most, uh, well-known and, and widely shared campaign called Your Logical Fallacy Is, uh, which is a, uh, a, a catchy and attractively presented catalog of different logical fallacies, uh, that's been... Uh, shared and, and liked by hundreds of thousands of people on Facebook so today we're going to talk about uh, logical fallacies in general and the role that they play in uh, in discourse and and uh, how we as skeptics should be uh, talking about logical fallacies and also more broadly this question of how to how to spread principles of skepticism widely and and what are some techniques for doing that so without further ado welcome to the podcast Jesse it's great to have you
0: Thank you, Julie. Lovely to be here.
1: So maybe to start off, you could just talk about what motivated you. Let's focus on your logical fallacy is uh, for the moment. Mm-hmm. What, what so- motivated you to start that project?
0: Uh, Well, essentially, I wanted to use kind of my design and communication skills for good instead of evil, as you mentioned, um, and to popularize um, critical thinking and make it more accessible. And um, I focused on fallacies as a kind of proof of concept um, for that line of thinking, specifically because there's something that I think everyone intuitively gets, um, even if they're um, not academic. I mean, kids kind of get that idea that something's not right about the logic of something, um, but they don't necessarily have a name to put on it. And to be able to present a clear and um, uh, coherent sort of uh, example and idea of um, what that that gap in logic is can be quite empowering um, to somebody and that light bulb moment sort of happens and that's a kind of intellectual gateway drug into other forms of critical thinking.
1: And uh, how have you seen people using your logical fallacy is so far.
0: Oh, in a in myriad different ways. Um, I suppose it's it can be used. Um, at, well, the, the website itself obviously is is the URL is such that you can direct someone to a, uh, the website of the committed strawman fallacy. You can direct them to yourlogicalfallacies com slash strawman, as a kind of exposition of um the incoherence of their argument, supposedly, allegedly. Um, so it's used in a lot of social media contexts. Um, obviously on Facebook and so forth, and um. Twitter and, um, you know, other forums um, to be able to um, hopefully somewhat quickly and succinctly um, apprise someone of um, the faults in their logic and enlighten them as to um, how they might better construct their arguments.
1: Uh, Do you want to back up and just lay out the definition of a logical fallacy? I mean, as you said, I think people do have an intuitive grasp of it, but it can be helpful to sort of pin down exactly what counts.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, essentially, um, a fallacy is a flaw in reasoning. Uh, So there's an error in logic somewhere. And fallacies um, fall into a number of different categories. And there's um, not a whole lot of consensus on what exactly all those categories are. um, But the two biggest sort of buckets are formal and informal informal fallacies. So formal fallacies are Um, essentially when there is a a flaw in the logical structure of an argument itself, whereas informal fallacies are fallacious due to flawed premises or misleading justification structures. So the best way and the easiest way to think about it is that formal fallacies are like a mathematical mistake in logic, whereas informal fallacies are more like a a, um, rhetorical mistake or an argumentative mistake in logic.
1: Do you have any, uh, any easy to recall examples offhand of formal and informal?
0: Sure. So um, a formal fallacy um, that's quite common is the gambler's fallacy. Um, the gambler's fallacy is when people presume oftentimes playing roulette or um, other games of chance that if there's been a run of, say, three reds in a row, that it's more likely black will come up the next time. Um, but, of course, um, the last roulette wheel spin has no physical bearing on what the ball's doing the next time, so it has just as much statistical chance of coming up as it did previously. So that's a, a good example of a formal fallacy because statistically and mathematically um, the, the deductive reasoning there is, is just incorrect. Um, whereas a, um, an informal fallacy might be something like a straw man um Argument where you misrepresent somebody's argument as a kind of rhetorical trick uh, to make it seem like they're saying something that they're not.
1: Oh, interesting. I actually would have, I would have classified the gambler's fallacy as informal, and I would have thought of formal as something like, uh, like, p implies q, um, Mm. not q, therefore not p. You know, exactly. So it's affirming the
0: consequent. Yeah. Um, exactly so that's a, that's another example of it and this is actually a good example of there is some disagreement as to whether um, the gambler's fallacy is a formal or informal fallacy um, so um, yeah there's 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 um, I would class it myself as a formal fallacy because it's a um, it's a mistake that's deductive um, rather than inductive but um, it's the, the you could also argue that there's induction in terms of um, uh, is presuming probability um, but to my mind um, there's uh, there's a clear statistical um, reality there, um, aside from any inference. So um, it's a good example of uh, just why there's disagreement um, within ph- philosophical circles as to what counts as um, different categories of fallacies. Yes,
1: yeah, I, I, my personality is such that I tend to love these projects of categorization you know and, mm. and and making taxonomies of things to absolutely and i i i'm going to try to explain why i like it but i'm not sure that's that's not really these reasons aren't going to be my real motivation it's just sort of my post hoc attempt to explain what i you know what's motivating me but i think what's happening is something like categorizing things it it both makes the concepts stickier like it it makes them easier to remember and use and it also mm-hmm. uh, helps me understand the relationships between the things um, so having these buckets of formal and informal fallacies, or of inductive and deductive fallacies, uh, or I don't know, probabilistic. I, I actually I I don't know what what other categories of fallacies would you well noticed? i mean
0: there's kind of subcategories as well within the informals and informals so um there is for example fa- fallacies of relevance um, such as red herrings and so forth um causal reasoning fallacies such as false cause um, affirming the consequent um, right. uh, and then there's generalization fallacies such as composition division hasty generalization and there's ambiguity so and there's actually there's a really um fantastic um resource at um fallacyfiles.org oh, yeah. they've got a You've seen that before? yeah. I, got... I
1: think it might have been one of my very, very first Rationally Speaking picks, you know, years ago now.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, cool. Yeah, they, they've got this um, taxonomy of all the different fallacies and they've um, sort of, you know, um, nested them into um, various groups underneath each other, um, which is, it can be really, seeing in that visual context is, um, is quite um, satisfying and um, clarifying, I think, and to understand the relationships between different fallacy groups.
1: Yeah, Yeah. so that what I was going to say is even though that, even though I think there's some, uh, uh, as as you were saying, some ambiguity in how to classify the various fallacies, I think just the act of of classifying them and naming them the way you do uh, on the poster at your logical fallacy is 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 quite helpful um, in making the concept sort of sticky and understandable, uh, which is I I think a big I would hypothesize a big you know factor behind the success of that campaign.
0: Yeah, sure. Um yeah, it's it's interesting in so far as that I think um when we're Talking about things like fallacies and that can get quite complicated, and can seem quite heady. Um, but as I was saying before, it's, it's also um, there's a there's a strange kind of dissonance there because it also feels so tangible and intuitive that there's something wrong. And so I think if we can distill those messages to um, something as clear as possible, that that can be quite helpful um, in terms of um, not only gaining clarity um, but also um, promoting um, better thinking um, more generally.
1: So Jesse, do you have any favorite fallacies or or least favorite, I suppose, depending on how you look at it?
0: Yeah, that's, um, I suppose, um, Probably the fallacy fallacy is one of my um, favorite fallacies to mention only because um, it sort of exposes the fact that um, a common mistake a lot of people make with regard to fallacies is presuming that if someone has um, committed a fallacy that their argument is therefore wrong and their point is wrong and um, everything they've ever said is probably wrong as well. Um, <laughs>
1: In the extreme version of the fallacy fallacy.
0: Exactly right. So and their parents kind of, are wrong.
1: And their yeah. So meta-wrong,
0: yeah, it's factually wrong. Um, So um, what that does is it it, it sort of exposes the fact that uh, logical coherence doesn't have any bearing on truth value. So you can um, argue for something that is entirely true um, using fallacious reasoning and and terrible arguments, um, which is painful to watch if you happen to agree with the person that's arguing. Um, Or um, on the flip side, you can be arguing um, with perfect logical coherency for something that is an entirely false conclusion, um, so the coherence of an argument itself is what the fallacies deal with. The truth value is an entirely different proposition that goes into argumentation more generally.
1: Yeah, and it's really striking to see like the the uh, conflation of the soundness of, of a logical argument with the truth of its conclusion is just so, it's so natural. And, and there's mm. such a, a natural cognitive urge to, uh, to pr- pronounce something sound if the conclusion is, uh, is actually true in real life. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: And vice versa as well. If you see something, you know, if someone's arguing for something fallaciously, it's, um, it's very natural, I suppose, and intuitive for us to um, then presume that probably their argument is, you know, going to be unsound, um, and that um, everything else that follows from that. So there's, there's certainly, and I think there's, um, you know, the heuristic there that's at play, is that um, there probably is um. Some amount of correlation between the fact that people who are arguing for, you know, um, just factually incorrect um, arguments, such as, you know, anti vaxxers or climate deniers or these kinds of um, areas where the employee of fallacies is um, ever so much more readily um, brought out like machine gun fire. And so we can, we deduce um, uh, intuitively that there's going to be. Um, not just correlation, but perhaps causation there when that may or may not be the case.
1: That's right. Yeah. And in fact, this ability to, uh, to distinguish the logical soundness or validity of an argument from the truth is one of the things that psychologists use, uh, as a metric to test people's abstract thinking abilities. Like if someone can look at the argument, well, this is going to be a bad example because I just made it up, but, uh, you know, uh, if, um, uh, if, Dr. Bob is always right and Dr. Bob claims that climate change is a hoax, then uh climate change is a hoax or something like that. Uh sure. that is yeah. uh or like I guess more formally it would be if Dr. Bob says something uh implies that it's definitely correct and Dr. Bob says uh climate change is a hoax, then climate change is a hoax is definitely correct. Uh, That is logically sound. Uh, However, you know, the premises are not actually true, and therefore the conclusion is not true. But it does take a certain level of uh, abstract thinking ability to be able to say that and not to say, well, you know, that that argument is flawed. Um, Correct.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Our intuition, I think, is to um, is to presume that, that that coherence is, you know, correlated to the reality. So, um, it's certainly, I think, it's something that we learn through practice, especially in if as people become more versed in critical thinking, um, that abstract reasoning ability um, becomes more natural in terms of questioning um, that kind of granular level of, of detailed logic
1: so you we've already kind of started to touch on one of the main uh things that I wanted to discuss with you, which is uh i I've developed this kind of hesitation about pointing out logical fallacies uh over ever since I you know started uh, getting involved with, with the skeptic movement mm-hmm. um, and I think there are a number of dimensions to that um, one of them is sort of related to what you said about the fallacy fallacy that uh you know, like, pointing out that someone committed a fallacy does not invalidate uh, the rest of their argument or or uh, uh, does not invalidate other arguments that they make. Um, and, mm-hmm. and sometimes people act as if that's the case. Uh, there's a great quote that I found in a, a book, which was another one of my Rationally Speaking picks, called Historian's Fallacies. Um, so this, uh, I think he's a historian by trade named David, David Hackett Fitcher, says... Uh, you know, all great historical and philosophical arguments have probably been fallacious in some respect. Um, and if, if the argument were a single chain, then if one link failed, the chain would fail. But actually, most historians' arguments are not single chains. They're rather like a kind of chain mail, which can fail in some part, in some place, but still retain mm. its shape and function for the most part. Sure. Which I think yeah, is a yeah, nice, yeah. like, vivid way to picture why uh, why a single fallacy doesn't mean you get to therefore dismiss everything someone says.
0: Absolutely, um, yeah,
1: but but there was this other um, other way that I think pointing out fallacies can be not very helpful, um, which is that I think often the the things that people call fallacies aren't in fact fallacies, uh, and I, I think there's a number of ways that this can happen, but often I think this takes the the form of people saying. Uh, so when they point out a fallacy, they're they're saying something of the form, well, X doesn't prove Y, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, sure. so like the pointing out the appeal to authority, well, just because, you know, uh, this expert said it doesn't make it true. Yeah. Or or pointing out an ad hominem fallacy, well, you know, just because this person, um, you know, is uh, uh, is a, a crook doesn't mean they're wrong about this, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, yeah, sure. And the thing is, from, like... If the world worked on pure logical principles, then mm. yes, it would be very useful to point out um, that X doesn't prove Y. But mm-hmm. in reality, we're we're almost never looking for um, logical proof because that's sort of impossible uh, in in you know in the real world. What we're looking for is you know evidence that's at least moderately strong uh, for Y. Uh, and so often it is the case that. You know, if, if someone has relevant expertise and they claim something strongly, then that's pretty good evidence for what they're claiming. Yeah. Or if someone has done a bunch of things in the past that, that, uh, that indicate that they're like not that big on, on sticking to the truth, then that is pretty good evidence that, you know, we should mm-hmm. not trust what they say, depending on what they're Absolutely. saying, but like, yeah. you know what I mean?
0: I, I totally get what you mean. And I think that to my mind... Um, if you're attempting to have a constructive conversation with somebody um, is a very different situation to if you're arguing with um, a rabid ideologue who is attempting to um, uh, propagate and peddle uh, misinformation um, and perhaps even um, peddle quite dangerous misinformation about perhaps Um, you know, not listening to doctors' advice and taking natural remedies, these sorts of things, or, you know, advertising or political or media-related things that use fallacies in a way to distort, manipulate and um, misconstrue things in order to affect an outcome for their particular agenda. Um, I think in that instance, um, pointing out fallacious reasoning and the trickery involved there is particularly helpful and relevant and should be called out. However, when you're attempting to understand somebody else's point of view and perhaps um, come to a reasoned conclusion, just shooting off to them, you know, like, you made this fallacy, therefore you're wrong, isn't going to necessarily um, help um, further the conversation. So I think it's a matter of of being discerning about when and where to um, apply that. To my mind, one of the most important things about learning the fallacies is that um, you start to see it... Um, when you are looking at media, when you're looking at other people's arguments and through identifying it in other people's behaviour, that in turn helps you to identify the fallacious reasoning that we're all subject to within our own minds and to stop trusting our brains quite so much, which is, I think, a very important um, thing for for everyone to learn. Um, So I I totally get what you're saying about the sort of misuse and overuse of um, pointing out fallacies. I think that in some contexts it can be not as helpful as others. Um, but in some other contexts, I think it can be vitally important that we call out dodgy logic, um, especially when it can cause harm.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything you said, basically. Uh, but I, I just want to to be specific that the the thing that I'm complaining about now, I mean, I'm not complaining about you, but the practice that I've seen happen <laughs> that I'm complaining about is, uh, is not about pointing out genuine fallacies, you know when that's not the sure. most constructive thing to do. It's pointing out fallacies that aren't actually genuine fallacies. Yes. Um,
0: yeah.
1: Or 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 I suppose a, a, a more subtle variant of this that happens uh, a fair amount is sort of failing to give people a, to give a charitable interpretation of what people are saying. So yes. often, like, l- what if you take people literally, which I think, for whatever reason, skeptics and rationalists are, are disproportionately inclined to do, to, to, mm-hmm. to take things literally, um, people are saying things that are, that are fallacious. Uh, so, so often people will phrase, phrase things as if, you know, they, they're saying that X proves Y, um, that so-and-so is an expert, therefore he's correct about this. But Mm -hmm. actually, if you were to be charitable to them, what they almost certainly mean is that the person's expertise provides strong evidence for their view. Um, Absolutely. And I've been, speaking of enjoying taxonomies, I've been trying to create this taxonomy of ways that people, uh, or or, or ways to be charitable to people's arguments. Mm -hmm. So you might, because you appreciate a nice, uh, a nice, uh, catchy handle for a phenomenon. Um, <laughs> you and you might have already heard of this one, but one of my favorites is the Steel Man. Does that ring a bell?
0: I, I have. Uh, please enlighten me as to exactly what it means. Oh, I
1: good. Think I somebody. love getting to tell people about the Steel Man. <laughs> so you know what a straw man is. I think that's like, on do. your poster. Yeah. It's it's yeah. well for the benefit of our listeners, if they don't know, it's uh, uh, bringing up or, or arguing against a weakened sort of caricature of what someone is claiming, which mm-hmm. is like you know, dumber than what they're actually claiming. Misrepresenting and,
0: and, their argument. Yeah. yeah.
1: And, and misrepresenting it in a way that's easier for you to knock down the the way a yep. straw man is easy to knock down. And so uh, the steel man by contrast is, is the opposite of that. It's, uh, addressing like taking someone's argument, which may not be the most well-constructed argument because humans aren't great arguers by, by nature and mm-hmm. sort of fixing it for them and saying, well, you know, the, uh, uh, a a stronger sort of variant of this argument or or like to to make this argument stronger we could you know add this assumption um and then dealing with that stronger and therefore more interesting and more worth discussing version of the argument uh so so i've been thinking about a taxonomy of ways to do that and i think one of the ways is just you know to assume that people are inadvertently exaggerating the strength of the claim like saying x therefore y instead of just you know what they really mean which is x you know give some evidence for y and a- another sure. example that i see happen in these these discussions is something like people so so communication involves all of these unstated premises or assumptions which is just inevitable because we can never we can never actually Lay out all of the premises behind what we're saying. Like, if I tell you, "Oh, you should go to the store," um, you know, the pr- premises I'm not stating are things like I'm assuming that you want milk for your cereal tomorrow, and I'm assuming, you know, that that uh, uh, the store has milk, and I'm et cetera. Et cetera. Um, yeah, absolutely. but that's sort of like just implicit. That's just understood in the way we communicate. So I don't have to say it all the time. And so sometimes I think that that results in kind of sloppy, uh, sloppy arguments that. That behind which are like actually pretty decent arguments, and so the recent example of this, which you might appreciate, I uh, I saw this quote from Gwyneth Paltrow, who I don't know if you've followed any of her like activity in I the have, public in the last yeah, few years. The, okay, the so she, and yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. So she she was you know most famous for being an actress, and now she's sort of this lifestyle uh Woo
0: merchant
1: yep. yeah yeah lifestyle guru and merchant or, or something merchandiser um, and she has so and and she's really big into um, natural things and sort of yeah. spirituality and she had this quote about people saying you should wear sunscreen um, and she's she expressed skepticism and said you know I I don't really see I don't see how the sun could be bad for you because it's natural and yeah. people <laughs> kind of understandably jumped all over this, uh, or, you know, science popularizers and skeptics jumped all over this. And the, the res- and so the thing is, I think she's wrong, but I, I didn't like the way that people claimed she was wrong. And the, the mm-hmm. arguments tended to be things like, well, you know, here, have some arsenic. That's natural, too. <laughs> like Yeah, sure. Since you think that nothing natural can be bad for you. Uh, and so the literal form of the argument she made, which is if it's natural, it must not be bad for you is fallacious. Yes. But I think there was this unstated assumption behind what she said, which is she didn't really mean everything natural is good for you. She meant things that are natural, that, that humans have historically all been exposed to. And, Mm -hmm. uh, and we as a species are still around um, and still basically healthy. Um, It's harder to see how those things can be bad for you.
0: Yeah, I don't think she
1: would have argued with the strychnine or arsenic example. So
0: it's, I mean, interestingly enough, it's a straw man of sorts, right? So it's um, fallacy on top of fallacy in a way. Um, I think there's, and I, I completely agree with the um, the, the um, approach of trying to take a charitable um, sort of understanding to your opponents. Um, and maybe it's not to your opponents, it's just the human being. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> or whoever feels with. like, I, totally. I find myself using the phrase your opponents as well. Even yes. though I don't like to think that way, but it is sort of the natural way yeah. to characterize how we tend to to see and, people. We're arguing, yeah, within
0: within our you know system of thought, it mm-hmm. is an adversarial context, you know, especially when we're talking about debates and so forth. Um, but to go back to your, I, I think that you know, with the natural appeal um, to nature fallacy is a good example of that. Um, a lot of the time, people don't intend to. Um, commit fallacies and there's this that adversarial kind of nature um, in itself presumes that there's intentional manipulation there um there certainly is intentional manipulation um committing fallacies often from the media and from politicians and from advertisers and from um, people who are perhaps have a financial agenda um but when you're talking with some uh, somebody who's you know earnestly expressing an opinion a lot of the time the fallacious logic that they're employing is inadvertent and um it often is a heuristic of of something that has some some amount of you know validity and truth value i.e you know um there's a lot of people conflate um the appeal to nature fallacy as um taking the, of course a lot of things that we've evolved um, alongside of um, are very adapted and and relevant to our ecosystem in which we find ourselves and so there is there is there's an amount of, um, of um, relevance there and truth there to why someone um, might conflate those things and obviously with I get what you're saying the logically coherent form um, to presume that because something's natural, therefore it's good, is obviously wrong. But if we're to be charitable to someone's point of view and say, okay, well, I see what you're saying, that, you know, the, is this an evolved um, context in which we find ourselves and how do we understand that? So, and um, just to be
1: clear, I think she was still wrong. Like, even in the charitable version of her argument, the Steelman version, I think she's still wrong, but for yeah, a more oh, subtle, less obvious reason, right? That, like, uh, mm. well, a simple way to say it would, would be just that the way in which the sun... Uh, is unhealthy for us uh, mm. in that it, it gives us skin cancer. Is that's not a th- a thing that tends to reduce our genetic fitness by very much because by the time the sun has had the opportunity to give us skin cancer, we've basically reproduced almost as much as we're going to or as much as we're going to. So it's Quite not right. it's not going to be that much of a selection effect um, on. Uh, you know, on, on how much humans can... can in terms spread. of procreation, well, I mean, the right. other thing to bear in mind
0: as well is that, um, obviously, people with white skin um, have evolved white skin because they're in a, an area that had a lot less sunlight
1: oh, um, than right. people were living around
0: the equator. So there's there's a lot of complicating factors there, and, um, you know, people with white skin aren't as adapted to be in as much sun as someone I live in, Brisbane in Australia, and um, I burn pretty readily because I'm half Dutch and half Irish, but... Um, <laughs> So right, but that's
1: like a subtler mistake, totally, and I yeah. want people to criticize her for the actual mistake and not for the dumb straw mm-hmm. man mistake.
0: Yeah, and then you, you get into the situation where it's a, a sort of like back and forth of, you know, attempting to um, take things down instead of actually focusing on what's the pointed issue. Um, so I think it's, it's it's like anything, right? It's how you use it that's important. And um, calling out dodgy logic um, when it's potentially harmful is, I think, really important. Um, trying to get to the, the core of what's actually um you know, at issue is obviously something to be aware of as well. Um, but I, I totally get what you're saying in terms of um, I think it's it's more constructive and effective to um, a lot of the time try and understand someone's point of view and to um, listen to the intent of what they're saying rather than to try and smack them down immediately immediately. Um, with, um, you know, telling them they're wrong because there's fallacious logic involved. Um, Pointing it out, obviously, is, um, you know, can be helpful. And um, depending on the context and depending on the objective you have, um, I suppose, determines um, what that approach should be in terms of efficacy.
1: You had mentioned something to me before the podcast about how your focus over the course of this project, your focus had started to shift um, from the, the structure of the fallacies themselves to the psychology that motivates the fallacies. Is this what you were talking about? Or, or, did you, were you thinking of something else?
0: Yeah, no, no. I mean, that's, that's kind of relevant. And I suppose that's, that's to me, what is one of the most interesting aspects of, of, um, of the fallacies and why I think it's really important for us to, um, become aware of it. Um, generally, um, what, What's going on there in terms of the the exposition of our own psychology as to why we um, why we commit these fallacies um, seemingly quite um, intuitively you might say um, because I think there is underneath most of the fallacies um, that um, we can find there's actually a mechanism whereby we are um, not metacognitive. We're not thinking about our own thinking. We are not um, aware of the machinations of our subconscious mind attempting to justify a prior that we have, a belief that we have um, that we don't want to let go of. And to me, that's it's a really fundamental shift in thinking when you start to become aware of your own thinking and you start to become um, aware that your own brain lies to you, that you maybe shouldn't trust your brain and that maybe sometimes you should approach your own thinking with a measure of doubt and um, actually um, analyse and and um, take a step back from yourself to go, hang on, why am I shifting the goalposts now that someone's exposed a flaw in my thinking and changing the premises of my argument? Um, is it because I'm holding on to a belief or is it because there's actually some value to this and I've just argued for it poorly? It could be either of those things. But when we become aware of um, fallacious reasoning, um, both in our own thinking and in others, it can be quite elucidating in terms of being able to expose that psychology that underlies things um, subconsciously, because as I said before, I think a lot of people um, create, uh, commit fallacies without any um, malicious intent to manipulate anybody. It's moreover a defensive um, reaction from their own psychology um, to protect the beliefs that they have
1: i i I genuinely wonder though whether being given these lists of fallacies or or of cognitive biases does yeah. help people on net recognize the the flaws in their own thinking uh I can certainly see a plausible story for how it would um mm-hmm. and i and I have examples in fact of you know noticing like, uh, for example, I think that having names for fallacies, as I was talking before about having categories and and handles for concepts, makes them mm-hmm. stickier. And I've sure. I've seen that benefit in myself. So you know, having having the this, these catchy phrases and images like cherry picking or mm. no true st- Scotsman, I yeah. I really feel like I notice the myself committing these things more because I have names for them. Um, mm-hmm. So that is quite helpful. On the other Absolutely. Hand, I I you know. I've I've seen many concrete examples of people who, uh, well, so for example, I'm thinking of one friend who who learned all about cognitive biases, and now it's hard to have a disagreement with her because anything that you say that disagrees with her, she will say, oh well but you're just biased because, and then she has some reason (laughs) for why, you know, you can't have a, a, an objective position on this issue because, you know, it goes against your interest for whatever reason. And, uh, and it's really just become this, this, uh, like get out of, uh, you know, get out of evidence free card that she gets to wield whenever. And this is not a unique example.
0: Yeah, no, totally. And I, I think that it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's to, to a uh, man with a hammer, um, everything in the world looks looks like like a a nail nail. and it's, it's that kind of, um, thing going on there. And there's a continuum, I think of, you know, how, um, how instructive, how helpful, how elucidating learning biases, fallacies, critical thinking, argumentation more generally is, um, to people both in terms of um, different people but also over time as well so um, i think that um, an introduction to critical thinking um, is obviously not the end point for a lot of people and you know perhaps uh, uh, being enamored with you know fallacies or cognitive biases um, and having your mind be kind of um somewhat fixated on that um, over time, that's probably going to um, taper off, um, but the inculcation of that into one's own mind and then being aware of um, sort of like a meta level of, 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 of cognition um, in oneself and externally as well, um, is a powerful analytical tool and the, you know, the subtle ways in which becoming cognizant of these sorts of things affects various other aspects of our lives, everything from diet to healthcare to, you know, who we vote for to um, all these sorts of things. And, you know, from an individual level to societal level, um, it's obviously extremely complex. Um, My position on that would be that um, there is, I think there's certainly potential negatives to um, sort of like having that um, one that kind of knee-jerk reaction um, especially with fallacies of um, you know it's a fallacy I'm not engaging with that anymore I think being um, sort of charitable to to whom you're talking um, and trying to understand their point of view is is important Um, and with you know um, various other forms of like cognitive bias bias lists and whatnot there can be an initial flush of interest But that initial flush of interest for, say, maybe a 14-year-old who's grown up in a context where they've had nothing but dogma um, uh, given to them for their entire lives can be quite a pivotal, pivotal moment. So um, whereas for someone who perhaps, you know, is, is less inclined to have their, their mind altered in such a way, perhaps it's less of a significant shift. Um, but the net effect, I think, um, uh, is, is, a, is a positive one in terms of understanding and um, furthering, um, you know, a more progressive and enlightened um, world.
1: Well, hopefully I'm not yeah. I'm not totally convinced that that's true but it it could be true yes. I hope it's true uh, I assign
0: I assign probably about um, maybe 70 percent upwards probability to that yeah.
1: <laughs> Fair. Uh, so along these lines um, there have been some criticisms of the uh, your fallacy is poster uh, among the you know largely positive reception. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and the fallacy, the the criticisms tend to be around you know issues that we've been discussing that like mm-hmm. well it you know oversimplifies what actually counts as a fallacy or it encourages mm-hmm. people to you know wield these things as weapons to attack arguments that they for things they don't like etc uh, yes. and I so in our remaining how long do we have five ten minutes I wanted to talk about this trade-off uh, mm. here because I think or th- this this trade-off between you know, getting it really, really accurate um, mm. in your communication and in making something that goes viral, because I do think there's a trade off there. Uh, and- there is. And
0: that's, I mean, that's, um, I, I, there's some mere culpa there. And I've, I've, I've ruminated on this quite a bit because. Did
1: um, you say there's you a know- mere culpa?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go on. Um, just in terms of um, the, there is a like the inherent to the, um, to the to the website it is kind of adversarial. You know, your logical fallacy is, and yeah. I've seen it used in places. I've gone, ah, oh, that wasn't the intent. It was meant to be more tongue in cheek, and you know, you're not meant to be using this as a one thing. It should be part of a broader thing. But um, by the same token, I kind of what was attractive about doing it this way to me, as I saw, okay, this is a way that this can get social media traction and can popularize critical thinking more broadly. And, you know, now that it has gone quite viral and it's had over five million unique views, it's up in thousands of schools all around the world because the post is creative commons and, um, um, it's also doing a lot of good in terms of, um, you know, getting critical thinking messages out there. So on balance, I think it's it's worthwhile. It's not that there's no negatives, and I think those are kind of valid criticisms in a way, um, and also where they're employed as well. So, I mean, you know, just a, a throwaway thing to try and smack down someone's argument that was... Um, earnestly and genuinely attempting to engage is a very different thing to, you know, if someone's trying to say, um, you know, um, don't take chemotherapy, take this, um, you know, um, very special water. um, And because it's natural, um, calling that out as a, you know, appeal to nature fallacy is, I think, a very, um, I've no problem with someone being I'm quite blunt about <laughs> you know that that's fallacious logic. So it's it there's a there's a continuum there, right? And um sort of to to that point, I think that um, we as a skeptic community tend to. Um, we tend to make things quite complicated and there's an echo chamber effect um, when what we should really be doing, um, what I think is the most important project um, that we should be undertaking is spreading rationality and critical thought to the broader community, um, popularizing it um, amongst people who don't already identify as skeptics. And to do that, there is some trade-off between um, the simplification and um, the communication modes um, that we might employ to do that. And what we're trained in in advertising is how do we distill things to a um, to a really simple and engaging message um, that has relevance to you know the target market in the case of marketing, but I mean that applies more broadly to um, to human psychology and that equation to me from a consequentialist point of view is is a very clear um, reason to um, sacrifice some amount of nuance for the sake of um, spreading critical thinking, rationality, and skepticism, um, to a broader community.
1: Yeah. You know, someone, one of the, uh, someone critiquing the critics of your poster pointed out, made a good point, uh, which is that the, uh, the, the people criticizing the poster are in fact committing a a kind of fallacy in a way, uh, which is the Nirvana fallacy. Have you heard of this Mm -hmm. one?
0: Yes yeah. uh
1: right, so for for our listeners the the nirvana fallacy is uh basically uh, arguing as if something is like some some endeavor is bad or like shouldn't have been done because it's not perfect um mm, when the yeah. the actual question is you know, is it better than what el- what other things could have been done um with you know that those resources? Or, well, I mean, I imagine there are other reasonable questions you could ask, but saying it's sure. not perfect, therefore it uh, should not have been done is not really a great argument. Um, yeah. And uh, just to, to like f- further elucidate the fallacy, this bothers me every time people make an argument against gun control that takes the form, well, come on, like if someone really wants to get a gun, they still can. Like that's, I'm sure that's true, um, but that doesn't actually ag- address the question of whether gun control would reduce deaths from gun violence. Well, I mean it given. demonstrably
0: does because Australia um, uh, was a very clear example of um, more stringent gun control had a very, um, very unequivocal effect on um, shootings. Um, so, is it, yeah, I, t- I, t- I totally take your point though that it's um, it's it can be. Um, quite frustrating um, when those kinds of complations occur. Yeah,
1: I, I'm realizing what a, uh, what a dumb move it was for me to introduce the topic of evidence about gun control uh, at a, a time when I don't have time to go into the, the full <laughs> arguments about it. So I'm going to uh, regretfully leave that thread unfollowed. Uh, but uh, yeah. And along these lines, maybe the last question I want to ask you is, Um, what you've learned about making rationality and skepticism-related memes go viral, uh, like, aside from the general advice to keep things simple. um, Is there anything, you know, you've you've done more campaigns than than your logical fallacy is. Is there anything you've learned from across those campaigns?
0: Yeah, and I mean, I mean, Beyond just rationality as well, some of the principles of, of marketing communications and effective communication more generally, which is um, employed by, um, you know, advertising industries and so forth. There's some quite relevant um, learnings there, I think, for anyone that wants to communicate. And there's a lot of money's been sunk into market research to sell us crap that we don't need um, that can be actually used for more um, noble and worthwhile Uh, purposes so that i could bang on about that for hours um but as a sort of like just a takeaway the holy trinity of marketing communications is simplicity engagement and relevance um so um, trying to distill messages to the simplest form um trying to make your messages engaging in terms of um is there actually a hook there in terms of what you're putting forward or are you um you know is it a, a kind of self-indulgent waffling on, about something that you're interested in that someone else might not be? And 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 intrinsic to that is being aware of your audience and being aware of, um, you know, how receptive they're going to be, why they might be receptive to um, what you're talking about and adapting to suit that context, um, which is an interesting thing more generally in terms of, I think, um, uh, critical thought. Um, being less insular in our thinking and actually considering things more broadly and going, okay, well, what's the the efficacy that I'm looking for here? What's the outcome I'm looking for here? Who's the audience that I'm talking to? And actually considering strategically what we're trying to do in terms of the outcome rather than just being on the autopilot of, um, you know, um, people should listen to me because I'm right or whatever other uh, mechanisms are going on.
1: (laughs) Uh, I, I, I will, uh, we're just about out of time, but I will close with a, a nice, uh, a nice illustration of the difference between, uh, pure critical thinking and, um, what I might be tempted to call rationality. Um, this comes from my colleague and friend, Kenzie. I can't take credit for it, but someone, I, I never had a great answer for that question. Like, what is... What's the difference between rationality and critical thinking? Um, and then I saw someone ask her and she came up with this on the spot. So she said, well, imagine that you have two people who are trying to decide where to go for dinner. And so they they uh, research all the restaurants in the area and they read reviews of the different restaurants and they weigh the potential bias of the reviewers and they come up with pro con lists uh, and et cetera, et cetera. And by the time they've you know narrowed it down to the finalists, it's midnight and all the restaurants are closed. Uh, these people are exercising critical thinking um, in looking for biases and, and evidence, etc. But they're not exercising rationality because they're not actually accomplishing anything that they want to get done.
0: That's fantastic. Uh,
1: so I think that's yeah, probably relevant. It reminds
0: me of that um of that thing of that you know um, knowledge is knowing that tomato is a fruit and wisdom is not putting it in any milk in your milkshake. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Uh, All right. Well, we are just about out of time. Seems like a good place to wrap up. So we'll move on now to the Rationally Speaking Pick. Welcome back. Every episode, we invite our guest to introduce the Rationally Speaking Pick of the episode. Uh, And I ask our guests to choose a book or uh, other work or or even organization that has influenced their thinking substantially uh, over the course of their career, changed their mind or or shifted their focus in some way. So with that, Jesse, what's your pick for the episode?
0: Um, Actually, I'm going to pick um, a countryman of mine, um, Tim Minchin, who has been quite Um, not only influential but um, entertaining and um, just as a wonderful human being uh, more generally. And um, what I thought might be an interesting kind of experiment is um, if we attempted to use... Um, the army of rational skeptics listening to Rationally Speaking um, to help popularize rationality um, by trying to help um, a particular work of his go more viral than it already has. So one of my favorite things in the whole world is, um, some, is a, a YouTube clip called Storm uh, by Tim Minchin that I'm sure you're aware of, Julia. And um, I was thinking that if we all um, shared that on our um, social media um simultaneously as we can with a podcast where everyone listens to it sort of probably over um, a bell curve of a week or so, um, that might help to um, start some waves of rationality um, that would be perhaps um, quite effective in terms of um, spreading um, critical thinking and scepticism to a broader community because I think that using humour and um, well-constructed Pieces of animation and so forth is a really, really effective way of getting the message out beyond our own um, community. So, the ask is, I suppose, for everyone to go to YouTube, type in Tim Minchin Storm and um, share that video on your social media and see if we can, what effect we can have in terms of upping the view count of that um, over the coming weeks.
1: You know, this is actually uh, maybe not fully intentionally appropriate. Uh, pick for this episode because I storm was somewhat influential in my arc as a skeptic as well, but in kind of an interesting way. In that I did share it. You're, I I came across it and I was like, oh, this is so great, and then I shared it, and I got some pushback from from some you know very smart, educated friends of mine who felt that it was like a little bit a little snarkier, a little obnoxious. Um, yeah, right. And I <laughs> and and so I I it kind of caused me to step back and. Examine the the messaging, just as we've been talking about in this episode. Um, but I'm not I'm not sure that it was the wrong thing to do to share it, because as you say, it's a it's a very like catchy and funny uh, clip that is is totally you know viral worthy. Uh, it, mm. it, it has gone viral and has the potential to go even more viral. And um, and I'm not at all sure that the net effect is bad <laughs> of sharing of sharing Storm. Um, so it's it's kind of like an encapsulation of my of my confusion around this trade off between. Uh, between sort of nuance and accuracy on the one hand, and uh, and popularity, on the and o- popularity yeah, 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 o- and, and overall effect on the other.
0: Yeah, I suppose it, it comes down to um, a kind of virtue ethics versus consequentialist um, point of view, doesn't it? And um, to my mind, it's 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 worthwhile. Um, and I mean, it's a judgment call, obviously, to some extent as well. Um, I I find a lot of things that. Um, that to mention does in particular just so endearingly um, sort of human and funny and awesome that it, the kind of um, I suppose snarkiness in it to me is more playful than you know offensive. Um, yeah,
1: and I mean I certainly that was my first reaction to it as well. Like I didn't I either didn't notice the snarkiness or it didn't it felt sort of playful or unimportant in the broad scheme of the the point of the piece or something like that. Yeah, totally. It's yeah. taking a piss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well said. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, thanks so much for joining us, Jesse. Uh, it's been a pleasure Be cool. having you on the show.
0: Lovely. Thanks so much, Julia.
1: Uh, this concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense.
0: The Rationally Speaking Podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollack and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening.